The economy is getting back underway and with it, the world of pro sports. Stay ahead of the curve with the unparalleled tools of two world-class news desks covering developments across finance, economics, technology, and sports. Subscribe to Bloomberg.com, and if you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic for a limited time, receive a complimentary subscription to The Athletic. Go to Bloomberg.com slash subscribe to sign up today. These guys are barrels of fun. This is Section 422. On The Athletic. Welcome from the $5 Seats. This is the Section 422 Podcast. It is Monday, August 17th. Derek Van Riper here with Will Salmon. On this episode, we talk about a very busy weekend for the Brewers. Pretty big turnaround in their season. We're now one-third of the way through the 60-game sprint. The Brewers sit at 10-10 and after winning three straight games at Wrigley Field over the weekend. So we'll take a look back at some of the keys to that series and perhaps some pivotal moments as this shortened season plays out. And we'll take a look ahead at the upcoming series this week, which are both on the road, the first at Target Field against the Minnesota Twins, second at PNC Park in Pittsburgh against the Pirates. Will, how's it going for you on this Monday? Doing great, man. It's an off day for the Brewers, but somehow toward the middle and the end of the day, I find myself sort of itching to like watch a game and like still watch the Brewers. And I feel like part of that's because of the weekend that they had. It makes things a little bit more exciting. Just having them win those three games in a row. I don't know if that really changed how I feel about a lot of different aspects of this team. Actually, now that I think about it, it doesn't really change much of what I feel like about this team. But overall, it's one of those things that's hard to explain. Like if I go like area by area on this team... Yeah, I still feel pretty similar than I did on, say, Thursday or early Friday morning. But overall, once you get to that 10 and 10 mark, 20 games in, I do feel like that overall sort of feeling changes a bit where it's a bit more optimistic and you feel like, okay, maybe if certain things could right themselves, if things progress toward what we thought should be the mean for a couple of these players, they could pull off a couple more wins in a row. Yeah, I mean, things could have unraveled pretty badly this weekend and if you look at how these games played out you know the Brewers get blown out by the Twins at Miller Park in the series finale last week so they go into Chicago with absolutely no momentum you Darvish takes the ball and fires a gem against them in the series opener on Thursday night and it felt like there was a little bit of a cloud hanging over the team going into their matchup on Friday a couple things did go right though in Thursday's game, Corbin Burns pitched really well in relief of Brett Anderson. And thanks to Eric Lauer getting knocked around last week by the Twins, the Brewers decided to option him down to Appleton, or up to Appleton, I guess, more specifically. Uh, Burns is going to have a place in the rotation to call his own. So after throwing 69 pitches in his last outing, again, three and two-thirds innings, five Ks, He's probably going to be stretched out to about 80 or 85 pitches as a starter, I would assume. I think that's within the range. You can pretty easily add 10 to 15 pitches, and that's usually very doable. The question I have for you is, how do you expect things to change with Burns as a starter? Is it really that different than how he was being used as a follower uh, in terms of his pitch mix and how he's going to try and attack hitters? 
I don't think so. I think that the the answer to that question is a lot different for somebody like Freddie Peralta, right? Where Freddie's a guy that, for whatever reason, just we see him not attack as much as a starting pitcher. And I feel like maybe in the back of his mind, he's either saving stuff or he's a bit worried about guys picking up on the fastball early and sort of ambushing him or whatever. I don't know. Uh, but with Corbin Burns, I don't like. I feel a bit like he's in a situation where he hasn't changed a whole lot when he's gone from that relief where you know th- he had that first start that he went to the relief role, and I don't feel like he's changed a whole lot as what he was trying to do initially in that first start. He's utilizing all of his pitches still. Um, the fastballs look really good. The new fastball, more of a two seamer. He's not relying on that four seamer really at all. Um, it's been the two seamer for the most part. And I like what I see. It's a different guy than last year. I think that's pretty obvious at this point, right? Where And we're not even just talking about the pitch mix. I'm just talking about even just overall confidence because the Corbin Burns from last year is not getting out of that inning or he's not having that different outcome in that game where he was able to sort of rebound from that rocky sixth inning that he, that he started on the mound against the Cubs. You know, last year, that would have been a nightmare, I felt like. Yeah, I think the key difference, too, when you look at the pitch mix is you've got the cutter that he's using a lot against lefties, runs in on the hands of a lefty, and he's got a changeup that he's been throwing a bit more. Last season, he threw the changeup just 4.1% of the time. In this season, he's thrown it 13% of the time. That's a pretty big difference to have that extra tool in the bag when the fastball command is good, a changeup plays up. It just seems like he's got everything clicking. He still gets whiffs with the breaking stuff. That's always been part of what Corbin Burns could do effectively so I do think it is kind of a a more of the same and I think this is the benefit of using a follower the way the Brewers have you don't have this big transition you don't have to worry a lot about velocity going away compared to transitioning from like a shorter relief role maybe going down in a typical year and then coming back up as a starter right if the guy's throwing 95 or 96 in short relief he comes back as a starter a few weeks later and he's probably sitting more like 92 93 I don't think we're going to see that with Burns at all. I think we just get slightly longer outings from him. I still think the Brewers are going to try and be very careful with most of their starters and not let these guys go through the lineup a third time if they don't have their A-plus stuff on any given day. Uh, So I could imagine a scenario in which Burns often gets capped at five innings, but they're five very good innings before he leaves. I'm glad you mentioned Peralta, too, because looking back at the Cubs series, there was a critical moment. Brandon Woodruff was pitching really well in his start on Friday, hit a rare roadblock in the fifth inning, left after throwing 86 pitches uh, with the bases loaded in that inning. And Freddie Peralta came in, two scoreless frames, bases were loaded, struck out, I think, Javi Baez and Kyle Schwarber to get out of the jam. And it really just kept the Brewers in a position to take a Christian Yelich three-run home run and actually turn things around. I mean, this was another night that the Brewers offense looked pretty bad against Alec Mills the first couple times through the order. And Alec Mills is you know number five starter, really hasn't had a lot of time in the big leagues. So it was yet another frustrating night for the offense until Yelich had that breakthrough. But that doesn't really happen, or at least it doesn't matter as much that it happens if Peralta doesn't come in and get those two strikeouts. Yeah, in a game like that, Freddie Peralta became sort of like a footnote in that in that game. Whereas for me, he was like a main story. You know, if it, if it wasn't for it being Friday night and me thinking like a lot of people are not going to be 
all that into reading on a Friday night, Saturday morning. I mean, I would have written just about how valuable Freddie Peralta's been in that relief role. Uh, he's been exceptional. Uh, the splits are pretty remarkable, too. And, you know, just going back to that point, like, he's just a different dude when, when he's pitching. I mean, I remember that first start against the Cubs. It just didn't feel like I was watching Freddie Peralta. He was so s- sort of stoic on the mound. Um, his tempo wasn't there. Little things like that. And I think that just added up to just him being ineffective for the most part in that start. Whereas, you know, in the relief role, he's getting the fastball going. He's utilizing his off-speed pitches really well. They're playing off it. They're effective. I like. I, I just like him more of a reliever right now. And the beauty of the Brewers staff is that they don't need him for anything more than what they're getting from him, which is that long inning role where he acts as that tandem person and say, hey, you know, if, if Brett Anderson falters or whoever doesn't perform well or somebody goes on the IL or whatever, then sure. But for right now, uh, they're best suited with Freddie Peralta, you know, part of that group that they can lean on for length. And, you know, also what that helps them do is not have to have that much pressure on those guys at the back end. Because right now they're they're having they have those guys back there that have been so exceptional, so dominant. Devin Williams, uh David Phelps. I throw Yardley in the mix there too. Um, but it's more about Phelps, Williams and, and Hayter. I feel like they need another guy there um, to be more comfortable. I would be more comfortable for them if they had that other guy, that other piece there. But for right now, you know, with forty games left, I could get on board with the with the idea that that's all I need too. Because they're also getting those sort of outings from Peralta, those outings from Suter that get them late into the game anyway. Yeah, the bridges uh, are kind of being held together with those multi-inning performances. I would say Peralta is pretty firmly in that circle of trust right now. And if you try to imagine an elimination game scenario, game seven of the World Series, if you really want to dream about it, and you imagine Brandon Woodruff would be the guy the Brewers want to start that game, and if Woodruff only goes five, maybe he goes six, Peralta is going to be part of that bridge that gets you to those last three guys. It's amazing, too, that, that Devin Williams really has, early on this season, in just eight appearances, really established himself as someone that Craig Council truly trusts. I mean, Peralta's got his trust. I think that was evident just based on what happened Friday and the situation he brought him in to clean up. Williams, high-leverage spots in front of David Phelps, and then Phelps in front of Josh Hader. And I wonder, too how much the lack of depth with the short relievers is impacting the usage of Hayter and how much that's going to be a limiting factor in how often we see him go for more than three outs because the lack of depth was kind of exposed even though the Brewers won on Saturday. You and I were texting during the game. like we We're sitting there. I think it was with the seventh inning. How are they going to get out of this? How are they going to get these last outs? Because if you don't have Williams and Hayter and Phelps and Peralta, and Burns all available, you're looking at a total mystery box. You're relying on guys like Claudio to come in and, and get really critical outs, or you're relying on Corey Knable to come in and get some critical outs. And unfortunately, you know, with Knable, I think part of it is still the unusual ramp-up for him and trying to recover from Tommy John surgery. He just hasn't been himself yet. It doesn't mean he's not going to get there between now and the end of the season. It just means if you have a critical high leverage spot, he's really not a guy that you can comfortably turn to for the time being. Yeah, and and look, I'll put myself in this category as well, but there were people who just got on Fantasy Island with Corey Knable and just instantly wanted him to pitch the eighth or the ninth inning and have a clean 
road to Josh Hader. And so it would be like sort of starting pitcher, then maybe somebody in the sixth or seventh inning, then Knable, then Hader, end of, end of the day, win for the Brewers, that type of thing. And it was easy to sort of get on board with that because we all know how great Corey Knable can be. But the other side of that is the guy was in a recovery process from Tommy John surgery still. And I feel like a lot of us, and again, I'll put myself in there as well, we were very quick to say he's going to be great. You know, it's Corey Knable and that's it. He's going to get us to Josh Hader, right? But I mean, we're seeing the effects of it where he's throwing 94, he's not throwing 98. And with 40 games left, I'm not sure if he ever gets beyond 94, 95 on occasion. So, and then again, that's not really that fair to expect him to get much more than that because he's just not, he's just not there yet because of that weird sort of rehab process that you alluded to. Yeah, again, not his fault whatsoever. And I'm definitely guilty of hoping and maybe expecting simultaneously that vintage Corey Knable would show up from day one. The velocity just hasn't been there. And we're talking about a guy that when we last saw him averaged 96.9 miles per hour on his fastball. To this point in 2020, he's averaging 94.1. That's a huge difference. It forces him to throw more curveballs. He's not commanding the curveball very well. Hitters sit fastball and they punish it. All three home runs he's allowed this season, not surprisingly, have come against that fastball. Uh, I think hitters have slugged 889 against that pitch early on. So there's some work to be done. And I think the question here also goes to the depth guys who came up prior to the series against the Cubs. We didn't see Drew Rasmussen or Angel Perdomo pitch over the weekend. It would have been really throwing those guys into the fire had they used them in those situations on Saturday. But a part of me thought, you know what, I'd actually rather see what one of those guys can do in this spot than see what Corey Knable can do. You know, I think we are nearing a point where it might not be right away in the twin series, but we're not that far away from one or both of those guys being tested in a high leverage spot because you're going to have guys who are unavailable. You're not going to have guys going two and three days in a row. You're going to have to try them in a difficult spot sometime and kind of see if they sink or swim. Yeah, I guess the other side of that is they don't want it to be the first time they try them, though, too. So they don't want that to be the same thing. You, you know, the, the first time they get on the mound, they are clearly trying to avoid that being a huge spot, it seems, because otherwise we would have saw them perhaps even on Sunday when they did have to go to other people beyond the ones that they've been relying on all season. But just quickly on those two dudes, man, I'm excited to eventually see them, of course. Hopefully it's this week. Uh, because I feel like they can provide that boost uh, just by all accounts of what I've seen from going back into spring training to summer camp with uh, Drew Rasmussen. It's been electric, both of those guys. Uh, Perdomo, I, I, it's hard to speculate too much on, on what he's going to be able to do because we I didn't get the opportunity to see him in Appleton. I don't know what his ramp up toward getting to Milwaukee has been like after testing positive for COVID-19 prior to the start of summer camp. So that one's a little bit unclear for me, but I know what I saw from Drew Rasmussen, and I could not have been told that there were 15 or so better options on that pitching staff than Drew Rasmussen at the end of summer camp. So I'm excited to finally see him, and hopefully that comes this week. Yeah, I, I think of the two, he's a little more polished. I think Perdomo might even have a higher ceiling long term and that's not at all cutting on Rasmussen I think that just gives you an idea of how excited we could be about these two guys and they may have to step up because we've talked about you know, trade opportunities and different things that might happen and even if you add one more really good reliever 
you'd like to have six or seven guys you trust. Like that'd be ideal to have a true Super Bowl pen. And I think, you know, maybe the development of Devin Williams, maybe the the kind of unheralded signing of David Phelps, maybe that's the the foundation that you need around Hater to start to make something like that happen. Now, I think the other thing we should talk about on this episode is the offense because it seems, and I need to look this up. I should have looked it up before the show. It just popped into my head as we were talking. It seems like this team is playing down two or down three to begin every game. I, I, I Am I crazy or is this actually the case? The Brewers are trailing after two or three innings almost on a nightly basis. It's it's worse than you think. <laughs> whatever whatever you think it whatever you think it, it is it's 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 worse. And a big thing for me has been that leadoff spot for the Brewers. I looked it up today. Combined, they're batting around one fifty out of that spot. And I'm talking about throughout the duration of a game. So say Eric Sogard is the guy batting first, and he's getting his three or four at bats, whatever. Add all those up for all those guys who have batted first for the season for the Brewers. It's around 150 of a batting average. And you don't need any other statistic. You don't need any other advanced statistic to tell you that that's horrible. Um, like that's, that's rough. Um, when that's the first guy that's getting all the at bats for you or the most at bats over the course of a game. And I feel like it just starts right there. That puts them in a hole right away. And then from there, you've received sort of, I don't want to say minimal contributions from Kesson Hira or Christian Yelich, but Definitely has not been what they what you expect either one of those guys to be doing. It's been better lately from both of them, but still early on, that's definitely contributed to those feelings you have of, you know, being in a hole early pretty much every game. So I'm looking at the splits right now over at baseball reference. For the season, through twenty games, the Brewers have hit a total of four home runs in the first four innings of games. That's incredible. Like, the, like, how how do you not accidentally hit a few more than that? I mean, it, I, I don't know if there's anything to it, if it's just random. Like, it, it could easily be random. But I feel like that puts a lot of pressure on your pitching staff when you're not scoring runs early in games, whether it's completely statistically random or actually the function of a problem doesn't necessarily matter in terms of how it impacts the rest of your team. But Constantly feeling like you can't give up anything has to be an added level of pressure for the pitching staff. Yeah, and I think we've seen that, though. I think we've seen that happen with, and I think even, I don't want to speak for the guy, but I feel like Adrian Hauser's last start may be indicative of that, where he was really trying to be very fine with his pitches, trying to hit the edge on every single spot instead of attacking guys with his really good stuff with that sinker slider combination. And instead of just letting it fly, he was being very cute with trying to get on the edge and trying to be perfect with every single pitch. And that contributed to some ugly results early on for him where he issued what three walks um, right away and got a nice conversation from Craig council as a result and things got better. Right. But I, I feel like, no matter what they say, that has to be in the back of your mind. I, I think I, actually now that I think about it, Adrian Hauser said it's it's more prevalent between starts because it, you're looking at it and you're saying it's yourself, and it's you know it creeps into your preparation a little bit, and then on the mound you sort of forget about things. But man, I don't know. I know if I was on the mound, I wouldn't be forgetting that I'm down three nothing or that my offense hasn't been able to score runs early or at all. Um, 
and I'm trying to do the best I can to win games. And so I think we've seen that with Hauser a little bit. We're trying to be too fine with pitches. We certainly saw that from Eric Lauer um, in his last two starts. So I don't know. It's definitely not helpful, put it that way. Yeah, it certainly can't be helpful at this point. Now, I think the offense might be finding a few answers. I think Luis Urias in his first week back had a great week. Drove in a few runs. I think he had four RBIs for the week. That's not a way to measure a player necessarily, but hit 474, got on base at a 500 clip. You start thinking about options to potentially take over that leadoff spot if you're not getting enough production at the top. This is something you wrote about for The Athletic. Luis Urias at least has to be a candidate to take over that job. I've been adamant that he's got to be one of their best nine offensive players since they traded for him. I, I are we finally seeing it? Are they going to make that move this week? How long do we have to wait for that adjustment to actually play out? I feel like you've been waiting for almost a year now. It's been about 10 months for you. Yeah, since, since the uh, day he was acquired, I'm like, well, he's got he, he's good. Let, yeah. let him play. He's going to hit. Yeah, man, I give you all the credit in the world. You were on top of it. You uh, you certainly hit the nail on the head with, with uh, Luis. I was a bit more skeptical. So to your credit, um, you hit it right away. The contact skills, the plate discipline, the knowledge of balls and strikes – it's all been very clear throughout just, what, his first handful of games so far this season. And it's been refreshing, all of it, really. The approach, going the opposite field, knowing not knowing what pitches to swing at, which ones to lay off of. It's all been great. So I, I feel like it's going to be a matter of time because, one, it seems like Craig Council has tried everybody in that spot anyway. So it's only a matter of time before he gets to Luis. But, but also it just makes sense. Um, and I do say that jokingly because I was a huge fan of some of the moves that he made in that leadoff spot. Not to get too crazy about the batting order, but I think it made a lot of sense to put Brian Braun there um, against John Lester. And then before that, I thought it was certainly worth a try to try to get Omar Narvaez going because that's a guy that we talked about during the off season or during spring training, I should say about him, um, not exactly crushing balls or he's not going to lead the majors in exit velocity or anything like that. And he has a unique way of getting the job done. It just hasn't, hasn't been there for him yet. And I, and it's hard to really pinpoint the reasons why other than looking at his chase rate and that's the one that stands out to me that's been an outlier for him where that's just not what we're used to seeing from Omar Narvaez no and you always wonder when any player goes to a new team whether it's via trade or signing a big contract in free agency are they trying to do too much are they trying to uh, just show everybody what they can do every time they swing the bat who knows if that's actually what's going on it's again one of those things you really can't quantify or always figure out unless the player himself comes out and says yeah, I was pressing. I was I was trying to hit a three-run home run with nobody on base. The offense as a whole still doesn't look good. We're talking about a team that's 27th in terms of WRC plus at 82, so 18% below a league average offense right now. Part of that is Braun missing time, and when he has played, he's not contributing a whole lot. Part of that's Avi Garcia not doing a whole lot yet. He still looks a little out of sync. I think he looked out of sync at summer camp, too. We just haven't really seen him get locked in at the plate yet it should happen at some point when it does he becomes a very important contributor for this offense uh, part of it's just not having a lot going right with the third base platoon I mean Eric Sogard is walking a lot and he's not striking out but he's not doing damage like that's just the problem right now I mean he's 
bringing this offense down along with Smoke, too. It's like a couple of, of home runs is really all we've had from Justin Smoke. So the strikeout rate's still a concern. You know, ben Gamble is not thriving with the opportunity to play more, so I think that is an area of concern. I think we talked last week about how difficult or how easy it is to trade for a veteran outfielder, especially a corner guy. I think they're going to really have to strongly consider that. Uh, we did get an email from one of our listeners. Sean suggested uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. as a possible fit for the Brewers. Uh, obviously a great defensive center fielder and probably not a guy that's going to take a lot to acquire via trade. If you think about the outfield mix, Yelich in center is not really going to happen. Obviously, Braun's not going to play there. Garcia likes playing there. I don't know if he's necessarily optimally suited to play there. So if they upgrade the outfield, is it someone like JBJ or is it someone kind of like a veteran corner masher who almost is like a left-handed compliment to Braun? I like that email. It's a good idea. <laughs> it is a good idea. I'm a, I'm a huge uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. fan, actually. Are you? I, I feel like I traded or I pick him up in fantasy every single year, and he always disappoints, but I still I still go with him every year and just hope for that two-week hot stretch. He has a, a stretch. If you look back at his career month-by-month splits, I want to say it was probably 2016 in August where he was the best hitter in baseball for like three oh, weeks. Oh, I remember it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he probably won you a fantasy league that year because he was that good. I mean, he has power. He has speed. He's not necessarily a guy that you look at and say, he's going to fix the offense, but he yeah. does stabilize you in center field at a bare minimum, and he can be at least an average sort of hitter. The problem is you have a little bit of the below average for a long period of time problem. He's been a, a 90 WRC plus or lower each of the last three seasons. So I help, I think it helps defensively. I'm not sure it's enough of an offensive upgrade. So I think that's where the difficult decision comes for David Stearns is, do you want all glove in center field or do you feel like you need more for the offense? And I think probably got to lean more towards boosting the offense because you downgraded with Grandal to Narvaez. You certainly don't have the production at third base with the platoon that you were getting from Mike Moustakis. And those things happened prior to Kane's opt-out, which also brought down the offense a bit. So Avi Garcia, of course, part of the plan to replace, needs to hit. Narvaez needs to hit. Urias comes in. He's hitting right now. I still think you need more of an offensive boost than a defensive boost as you look at this team. Oh, absolutely. You, no question about it. I feel like if you just look at the outfield, aside from Yelich, I mean, I, I actually have liked what I've seen from Garcia over the last week or so. I feel like he's hitting balls harder. He's He has a better approach. Uh, Sunday notwithstanding, you know, that those a couple of those at-bats were kind of messy. But before that, he, he had a nice little stretch going where there was some bad luck involved with some of his outs. Um, so I don't know. I, mean, I, I feel like he's close to really breaking out for the Brewers. Um, and, I, and and in center field, he's been pretty okay. He has the outfield assists, of course. Those have been spectacular. Um, made things a little bit interesting on that final catch on Sunday, right? Uh, where he was jumping up and, you know. Yeah, Char- charged charge the ball that could have got over his head, yeah. Ooh, ooh, that got a little dicey, but, um, <laughs> but he caught it. So, hey, he caught it and it was all good. But, yeah, man, I, I just feel like Ben Gamble has – his first week was great, and he's yet to rebound right now from a really bad slump. And you just don't know what you're getting from Ryan Braun week to week. I mean, it's it's been every week there's been he's in the lineup and he's out of the lineup. And it was nice to see him produce over the weekend. Um, but they need more. They need some consistency out of that right field spot. And so far they haven't gotten it. 
at all. And offensively, that's where they're one of the areas where they're hurting. Like you mentioned, there's other, there's definitely other areas, including third base, but I do feel like that, that outfield position is the one where they really have to upgrade. Yeah, you look at a second base. I mean, Keston here has been kind of feast or famine as a hitter so far, and there's been enough feast where you feel good overall about him, but he's still striking out a lot. And as you watch him, do you feel like he's making adjustments quickly enough to bring that strikeout rate down? Because I watch him and I see a guy who swings a lot early in the count. That's part of what makes him a good hitter is he can connect and do damage when he does, but... I kind of feel like what you see, at least in the short term, is what you get with that approach. And that could be a little bit problematic given how much swing and miss there is in other parts of the lineup. Yeah, well, I just feel like that's kind of who he is, maybe, where you're going to have to accept some swing and miss from him. He's, you know, if you look at his track record, yes, he makes a lot of contact, but he's not one of those guys who the con he's not like a like a sogar type of player where like the contact is there and the strikeouts aren't the strikeouts have been the swing and miss i should say has been part of keston hero's game for a little while um and that's been exposed certainly more dramatically this year with especially in the you know upper third of the zone where he just has not connected it's it's been pretty obvious it's clear as day um when he's up there that pitchers are challenging him in that spot and so that to me, over the next couple of weeks, he's got to make a counter adjustment there somehow. Whether it's laying off that pitch a little bit, I don't, but even so, some of those pitches are in the zone, so you're going to be taking those as strikes then. So he's he's got to do something there uh, to address that issue because otherwise, you're going to keep challenging him there. Yeah, if you look over at the Statcast zone charts at whiff percentages, Keston Hira doesn't whiff in the zone except for the top third. Like, yeah, that's where you can beat him right now. I want to talk to a hitting coach at some point, Andy Haynes, or literally any coach who works with professional hitters and say, how difficult is it to correct that flaw, to get enough bat speed to catch up to those pitches? I mean, I think that's the problem, right? Like Kesson Hira has plenty of bat speed, and he's getting beat in a spot where a lot of good hitters get beat. But whether or not that's a temporary problem, I really don't know. Yeah, me either. It's a gr- that's why I kind of left it at that, where it's like he's got to do – I don't know what it is, but it, it has to be something because it, it's just every time. I don't, he hasn't made contact in that zone. It's not even that he's whiffing and you know there's been some swing and miss, whatever. He's yet to even make contact, according to StatCast. And the, and the upper – I just – it baffles me. He's just too good for that. He really is. If I had to bet on it, he'll fix it in the long term. I just don't think it's necessarily going to be a problem that we see go away yeah. entirely this season. So Yeah, that's a good call. That's that's where I'm at right now. Uh, I reserve the right to, of course, change my mind after watching the next six to seven weeks and see if there's any sort of progress <laughs> there. Uh, but let's take a look quickly at the series coming up this week. We see the Twins again. We saw them last week. Look, the Bomba squad can put up runs in bunches. We saw Eddie Rosario hit a couple home runs. Byron Buxton, everybody hit in the Wednesday game. But this is a team that top to bottom has one of the best lineups in the American League. I think having an off day before facing them, given some of these reliever depth issues we talked about, is really important. Like rolling in there with a bunch of your best relievers unavailable for game one of that series would have been less than ideal. So that alone kind of makes me feel better about how this series could begin. Yeah, it's a good spot for them. I agree with you. It's fascinating to see what Corbin Burns will be able to do in, against that lineup. That's that's a huge test for you right off the bat. I mean, it's, hey, you're back in the rotation. Here's the Minnesota Twins for you. Um, 
it's tough, but I I have confidence in him to to uh, weather weather the storm that's going to come with that with those at bats. I'm not expecting five shutout innings, but I, I do expect him to pitch relatively well against a, a strong lineup. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibilities at all based on how he's looked so far. So that's a great point that you make. They're coming off the off day where yes, they had to go to their ace relievers or their you know a team relievers, whatever you want to call them. And ask them to get big outs in high leverage, high intensity position situations. Um, but that Monday off day is huge for them. They get to they get to reset. Um, and again, this just continues a, a really tough stretch for them. Where you know it's not make or break for the season by any means. Just because they got to ten and ten now. Um, so if you know they they drop two out of three or whatever, it's not the end of the world here. Uh, but it certainly would be a boost for them to win this series um, against a, another really, really good team. Yeah, you look at the pitching matchups, a tougher round of matchups for this series against Minnesota. Kenta Maeda goes again on Tuesday. Rich Hill could be back from the IL to pitch Wednesday. Jose Barrios would go on Thursday. It's going to be Burns, Brett Anderson, and Brandon Woodruff Tuesday through Thursday for the crew. And I think the key is getting five innings from Burns. You can't have Burns go short because I think Anderson is a guy that you know you're going to need a lot of bullpen reinforcements behind him. Ideally, you could go Freddie Peralta for maybe three innings after Brett Anderson pitches, maybe get seven combined from those two guys and not have to get as many outs from the short relievers on that day. And then with Woodruff, you're hoping he goes his usual six plus. If he's able to do that, then you know, you're in okay shape for this matchup, but it's going to be a really good series again to test the Brewers, see where they're at, kind of get a good measure of how they stack up against a legitimate world series contender. Uh, the weekend matchup against the pirates. We said this at the beginning of the season, the team that wins the NL central might be the team that does the most damage against the pirates. It's going to be Adrian Hauser likely on Friday against Chad cool, Josh Lindblom on Saturday against Derek Holland. And then Corbin Burns's turn will be up again on Sunday against JT Brubaker. Every one of those pitching matchups favors the Brewers. So, you know, you look at a series where you go on the road and you should have a shot at a sweep. That would be it. And to have some momentum potentially going into Pittsburgh, wouldn't be a bad thing either to sort of carry over what happened coming out of Chicago, getting a series win in Minnesota would be huge, but, I think they have to make their layups against the Pirates if they're going to stay in the division race with the Cubs. Oh, no question. They're overwhelming favorites in those matchups, to put it to put it nicely, from the Pirates' perspective. Uh, they should they should they should be able to beat the Pirates handedly. I mean, they're they're not a good team. They are if they're not the worst team, they're the second worst team in baseball right now. So uh, that's you you got to win those games um, quickly on the on the Burns point that you mentioned. Uh, before we wrap up here, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it, if it would be that bad if you actually just went four innings, even because you do have Suter available to help you out in that regard. So um, I feel like Suter's one guy that is easy to forget how valuable he's been this year for them, and he could certainly provide that that pick me up if they need it um, in that spot when they get to the second uh, second round through the order of that Twins lineup. So that's that's one thing to keep in mind and. 
They got Jed Jerko too, if they need him. You know, they can always tap him as a, <laughs> a right-handed reliever. Not even surprised that Jerko is the position player pitching on this team after seeing his uh, cornhole antics throughout uh, quarantine when everything was was shut down. But uh, should be another great week of matchups. Really looking forward to this twin series again. I think it's a good test against the legitimate World Series contender from the American League. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Section 422. You can find Will on Twitter at Will Salmon. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. You can get 40% off a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash 422. If you have that subscription, you can check out Will's latest piece, 20 Things Learned About the Brewers, one-third of the way through the season. Lots of other great stuff on the site, too, whether you're a Bucks fan, Packers fan, or you root for a bunch of teams outside of Wisconsin. We have you covered there. If you want to send us a question for a future episode, feel free to send those our way via Twitter. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review. We really appreciate it. If you do that, it helps other people find our show. For Will Salmon, I'm Derek Van Riper. Thanks for listening. We're back with you next week from Section 422.